Anyway, we're good. So we're now on to the second test of assurance that John brings to us. He's concerned because there's been false teachers in the church who have been claiming that they know God. They've been claiming they know God and John and the other teachers in the church don't really know God, but they do. However, these people who've been claiming they know God have been teaching strange things and John wants to correct them and he wants to assure the church that they don't need to follow these other people. In fact, the reason is because they don't really know God. Their lives don't match up to people who know God. So, he brings three tests of knowing God. In other words, how do you really know that you know God? These false teachers claim they know God. How do we know we really know God? That's the background of what's going on here in, to the people that John writes to. And the first real test was that those who really know God will have a desire to please him in that they would want to live holy and obedient lives. And they will be living that life, not perfectly, but they'll want to live that way. And they will not live in lawlessness, which is continuing to sin lifestyle. Really, people who know God will have the spirit of God living in them and that spirit will be motivating them, desiring in their hearts to obey God in obedient holiness. That was the first test. Now the second test is a real match for obedience because it's love. And John really does line up very, very closely with the teaching that Jesus himself gave to his disciples. And you see this very close alignment between um, obeying him and loving him and obeying his commandments and loving. Jesus sort of said all those things like in the one sentence, like this was all connected. It's not like compartmentalised, but if you know me, you'll obey me, and when you obey me, it will be a loving thing. You'll be loving others. That's what obedience will look like. Jesus was very clear on that, and John is very clear on that as well. So now he develops this second test of knowing God, and the test basically is a Siamese twin of obedience being love. As I said before, John presents these three tests of assurance earlier on in the letter under the heading of walking in the light. It's what it means or looks like to walk in the light. It looks like obedience, it looks like love, it looks like truth. That's the third one which we'll deal with in a couple of weeks' time. And then later in the second half of the letter, he goes back to those three tests of assurance but not under the heading of what it looks like to walk in the light, what it looks like to be a child of God which is the same thing, basically, but then he presents those three tests in a more expanded form. So he sort of jumps around a bit and circles around. So the first thing he wants to say about... There, there's our outline. About love is that love is practical. So when he says, you know, those who know God will love. Well, what sort of love? What, what are we talking about when it comes to love? That's what he's getting at. And he says it very clearly here. So those who know God will have this great desire within them, this overwhelming urge to love fellow Christians. 
maybe more so than your own family. That's interesting. That this, there will be a compulsion inside of you by the Holy Spirit living in you to love one another. It's that seed of God that lives in us. And verse 12 talks about the contrast, what love looks like, what it doesn't look like. What it doesn't look like is hating other brothers in verse 12. Can you see that in your Bibles? Have a look. What's it say? Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So here's a real like extreme version of not loving someone, isn't it? Like it's the ultimate. <laughs> Don't murder people. Did you know that? You weren't meant to went, weren't meant to murder people? Like <laughs> And it links back to what he'd said earlier in chapter two, verse nine. See it there? Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. So now he picks that same thing up about you know, hating brothers and illustrates it with causing us to think about Cain and Abel. Here's the classic case, the worst case scenario, what it looks like to hate someone to murder them like Cain. Don't be like that. And notice how he, he links back into the light and darkness earlier on. And earlier on he says, anyone who claims, in verse 9 of chapter 2, anyone who claims, remember, that is linking back into these false teachers. They are walking around claiming they know the light, but they hate people in the church. They hate John, they hate the elders, they hate people who are correcting them, they hate them. And they're not ashamed of it. And John says, well, they don't really know God if they're living like that. So anyone who claims is a, sort of a code of the false teachers. And then verse 16, what does this love look like? Well, first of all, it looks like not hating and murdering people. And in verse 16, he gives more detail about what love really looks like. This is how we know what love is, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So Jesus is the example of what love looks like. There's no doubt here. Whoever claims must walk as Jesus did, he said in chapter 2. So again, linking back into that. Like Jesus, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And what does he mean by that? Well, he explains it. Straight away he goes into it. Verse 17, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Very similar to what James says. How can you turn your back on a fellow Christian, your brother or sister in Christ, who's in need? And you just go, well, that's good for you or bad for you. Uh, good on you. See ya. Like, if someone is in need... Christian love will want to help that person. But it's because Jesus lived that life. He put others first. He went out of his way to help. He even risked his reputation by going to people who didn't fit in the religious mindset. He went to the Samaritans. He went to women by himself, like at the well. That was a no-no, but he, he risked 
his reputation, put himself out there to be side by side with people who needed his love, to, to be like Jesus, to put others first, to be moved by compassion when he saw the woman whose boy was dead. Jesus says he, he saw her and his heart went out to her. So be, for us to be moved with compassion when we see somebody. The other day we were walking up to the pub to have a meal. Thankfully we can just walk up there. And there was this body lying on the ground. This large man lying on the ground. We didn't know if he'd had a heart attack or whatever or he was just drunk. But, you know, we saw him there, got closer, made contact, you know, how you going, mate, blah, blah, blah. It was clear he was drunk. Asked all the questions about medication and, you know, have you got any other illnesses? You know, um, is there anyone I can call, mate? No one he can call, lives by himself. Hardly could get up on his feet, you know, stumbling around, very, smell it on his breath. You know, what do you do? Well, went and got the car and drove him home. I mean, really, it was just that compulsion in us to act towards somebody who is in need. How can you walk by somebody so desperately, some completely next to you, like you can't just literally physically walk past them while they're there. You're thinking, you know, someone's going to roll this guy and take his wallet. So you, you just act because you feel compelled to, to love others. Jesus was quick to forgive, to be patient, gentle and caring. Verse 17 and 18, he says about material possessions, not just words of bless you, but actually doing something to help others. And so the real message here is that, you know, the love of God in us compels us to love real people in real needs, in real situations. The false teachers were probably saying, I love God, but weren't loving anyone else. They can love someone they can't see, but they can't love people they can see. And John's saying this doesn't fit. John Stott, the famous Christian teacher and author, said, it is obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. And if we fail in the easier task, it is absurd to claim success in the harder task of loving God that we can't see. Calvin said, It is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image which is before his eyes. It does remind me a bit of a very silly movie I watched one day. It was funny but silly. It was a group of second best superheroes. <laughs> Quite a sad bunch, right? But they, they believed they had superpowers. You might have seen this movie. It's really funny, I think. And one has the superpower of anger. He's called Volcano Man. <laughs> and this other one called Spleen Man has the superpower of flatulence. <laughs> but this other guy, he's called Invisible Boy. And you guess it, he has the power of invisibility. And you would think, well, invisibility is quite a powerful thing. It can make a big difference. But the problem is in the, his superpower of in invisibility only works when, when he's alone. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
They would say, show us your invisibility. He'd say, no, no, it only works when I'm by myself. So he can never verify that he actually has the power to anyone else, but he's convinced that he is invisible man. It's a bit like us saying that we really love God. But when people are visible to us, that superpower of love isn't present. <laughs> Get it? It's a bit like being invisible boy. But when we're in relationships with people, when we commit to people, and that's really what church is about, not floating in and out, you know, not knowing people. Church is about knowing people, being in relationships with them, being accountable to them, loving them, taking interest in people on a regular basis. It's, it's like growing up in a young family when you're little kids. You know, you can't escape. You're in church. God wants you here. He's your father. But you're here because you want to serve one another and love each other. When you're in relationships, you really can't turn your back on people. You can't ignore their needs. So it's a practical, seen, visible love he's talking about here. And now moving on, this is the real thing. Loving others gives us assurance and protects us from condemnation. That's the second big point here. Notice in verse 14 how this, the assurance comes up. Verse 14, we know that we possess, that we have passed from death to life. In other words, we know that we are people who know God because we love our brothers. And then verse 19, down a little bit further, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So again, it's that assurance. How do you know that you know? Well, this is how you know. You've been talking about obedience. That's how you know. You know, really know God because you want to live a holy life and please God. Here's the second test. How do you really know that you know? Because you love others. Assurance gives us a very deep and powerful confidence, a confidence not based on changing circumstances or feelings, but rather on powerful proofs. Like in a nutshell, you could say, what's John's understanding of assurance? You could say it, well, in the changed life a Christian leads. The change that happens to us through obedience, through love, through obeying the truth, through believing the truth. He would say in a nutshell, you get assurance that you really know God because God has changed you. And here is the change. There is this new love. And assurance is that powerful proof that we really do know him. It's something deep within us. Assurance protects us from internal condemnation. That's what he's saying here. It's how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. And our hearts can condemn us. Our heart in the Bible is variously described. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be. So your heart is that whole of you that focuses on things. It brings your whole person to bear on that treasure, you know, my, my assets, my wealth, my goodness, whatever it is, or it can be given to God. It's our heart, it's our self, it's what we focus our life upon. 
Matthew 22, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the, you know, the other passage in the Gospels that talks about loving God, it starts with love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And one commentator said, well, what he, what he reckons Jesus is saying is, love God with all your heart. And what that looks like is in your, your mind, your strength. You know, what was it? Love God with all your mind, strength. That, that heart looks like all these other things. In other words, love God with all yourself, everything about you. But Jeremiah 17.9 in the Old Testament tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Okay, so the heart, what John's talking about here, that, that, that our heart can condemn us. We need something to protect us from what our heart might do to us. This heart is this changeable thing that can be focused on right or wrong. Heart in the Old Testament can describe, it can be a word describe personality, just who you are. It can be your inner life or character or your emotional state or sometimes your mind or just the whole person. So it can be used in different ways but it's just basically saying you. In the New Testament the focus seems to be more a combination of the mind and the emotions. And I think that's in some way a very easy way to think of what the heart is. It's your mind, it's the thoughts. It's also all your feelings. You know, I'm coming down here for feelings. <laughs> but feelings. So your mind and your feelings. That's, I think, a, a very simple way of thinking, well, that's your heart. Combining also attitudes and values. So when we look back on the passage, we're told that our hearts can condemn us before God and therefore our hearts need to be set at rest. In, uh, in this world, the heart is usually a reference to um, you know, your emotions. When someone is using it in a sentence, they might say, I love him with all my heart. And they're meaning all my feelings, all those feelings. Just do what your heart thinks best. You know, go with your heart, mate. In other words, don't think about it too much. Just go with your heart. That's the way it's often used. Um, but it's more than that. It's a combination of your thoughts and your feelings and emotions and will and all that. But it's just basically you. See, we can have wrong theological thoughts about God. We can think of him uh, as someone not gracious, but just a real judgmental God. That can be our, our thoughts. And if that's the way we think about God, then that's going to corrupt our heart. It's going to make you feel guilty and unworthy. A wrong thought will lead to wrong emotions about God. You could have limited understanding of salvation by grace through faith and you could think that you're always second best and that you're never living up to God's standards and therefore your heart condemns you and just says, well, you're not good enough for God and you're always striving to please him. That's your heart condemning you because your thoughts aren't right. You could be, say, a very damaged person from childhood abuse or hurt in relationships. You could you know, have had some very bad breakups from people who've hurt you and your heart 
finds it's hard to break free from those negativity and, and the drama of life. That's your heart. It's your heart. And this is the thing, this changeable part of us that can condemn us. John understands what the heart is capable of and points us to a life of loving actions toward each other as a remedy for the heart that's not at rest. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot in what I just said then. So what is John's solution to this heart that needs to be set at rest? You know, and this is what he's getting at. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. Verse 19, he's talking about love. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. In other words, he's saying, he's talking about love, loving one another. This is a test that we really know God. And when we love, we practice love and do love, that sets our hearts at rest for not condemning us. Because our hearts will say, you don't really know God. You're not much of a Christian. But when we love one another, we can say, hang on, heart. I am loving because God first loved me. Therefore, go away, condemnation, condemnating thoughts, because I'm practising love. That proves I know God. Go away, thoughts, because I'm proving I know God. That's John's solution. God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts can be twisted and not get it right. You only have to talk to a lot of young girls perhaps who've gone with their heart and found their heart crushed. They thought their heart was telling them the right thing to do and the right guy, but it wasn't right. It turned out to be devastating. Hearts can be misleading. But God's word, putting into practice love, they're solid things that can't change. Even better, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. God's promises of what he has done in us and how he accepts us, how he loves us, are greater than our changeable heart. Trust in God's promises about what he's done in us, not our feelings. And finally, he develops that thought even further by talking about that love and assurance drive out fear. In the final section, um, down a little bit further, outside of what we had for our Bible reading, he links back into loving others in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Have a look at that. Just turn over. Chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The fear that he's talking about is the fear of God on judgment day, which is a valid fear because we should fear God's judgment if we don't know Christ, if, we're not, if we don't have assurance. But if we have assurance that Jesus has paid the price for our sins, he's completely forgiven us, we are righteous before God by faith, 
If we have that wonderful assurance, we don't fear the judgment. He says in verse 17, love is made complete amongst us. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So what he means there, that love has finished the circle, the powerful circle that God intends to do with love. God is love, it begins with him. God sends his son in love. In love, Jesus dies for our sins. In love, he sends the Holy Spirit to fill us with God's love and then to continue loving others. Love then is made complete because God's will has been now put in action. What the Old Testament people fail to do to love and obey God, by his spirit now we are doing in the church. So that love of God has been shed, has been received, and now is given to others and then it continues around. That completeness of that circle of love is finished. Since God is love, whoever lives in him lives in God. And this completeness is what we experience when we love others. And that again proves to us that we are indeed people who know God. God is love, we know him, we love others, we have nothing to fear in the judgment. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we have nothing to fear. Jesus has taken it all for us. God's wrath has been poured out on his son. And then it says, perfect love drives out fear a little bit later. What does he mean by perfect love in verse 18? Because fear has to do with punishment. The perfect love is really another way of saying that love has been made complete among us. It's the perfect circle of what God's love is meant to achieve and in this world. It's been made complete and it's been perfected when we love others and gives us that assurance that we need not fear. That is the proof you know God when you're actively loving others, according to John. It's very powerful, very challenging. doesn't mean we get it perfect, but it means our desire is to love. And when we don't love, we feel bad about it. That means the Spirit of God is in us. So we have two now, obedient holiness and love as two proofs, but they go together. We have one assurance we can look to, and we have now two. These two go together. Love goes outward to others. Holiness is an inward thing. It's about what's going on inside of us, our attitudes, what we're, how we're handling this vessel that the Holy Spirit lives in. It's, it's, it's about us, inside of us, our mind, our thoughts, what we look at, what we don't, what we say from our mouth. You know, it's, it's more inner and personal, whereas love is something that's coming out from us. But we need both those two things at work in equal measure. Because holiness without love can be deceptive. It can be self-focused holiness. It can be limited and it can be hypocritical. 
If all we're doing is looking inward at ourselves, how perfect we are, how loving we are, all the things we don't do. Because all the things, when we keep saying to ourselves, I don't do this, I don't do that, I'm, I'm really good, what you're saying is all these other people do do those things and I'm better than them and therefore it's judgmental. Therefore then it's bad. <laughs> so if, if you just focus on holiness without love, you can be very hypocritical. The Pharisees were very holy people, but outwardly they lacked love. And that's what Jesus said to them. Holiness and love, if all a person is, is very wonderful loving of others, but they don't care too much about holiness, then that also is not a good way to live. You need both those two things in equal measure. And then the final one, which we'll learn about in two weeks' time, is truth. And truth, obeying the truth, knowing the truth, knowing the gospel, believing truth, not false doctrine, that whole thing, again, all the way through 1 John, there's this really strong theme in knowing the truth. So eventually what we'll get to is we'll have these three wonderful things that we hold on to as Christians. Obedient holiness, love and truth. And those three are the perfect mix of how to think about our Christian life and how to think about what's necessary in a church. And they all must be in equal balance with each other. And one balances out the other and stops us getting twisted if we only focus on one. And you'll see that. Let's pray. Lord, help us... When our hearts condemn us, help us to know the truth of your word, the promises you've given us. Help us to see the proof of the spirit working in us as we love others. No one can take that away from us. Lord, may your word live in us. May our love be practical and pure. May we live like Jesus and put others first in our thoughts, in our words, in our conversations in the way we live practically amongst ourselves. Thank you, Lord, so much that we can be sure that we know you and have eternal life. Amen.